Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired Baltimore police sergeant. In the Law Enforcement Today radio show, we are joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, their families, and the community. We'll also be discussing issues in the news from the perspective of those in law enforcement. Check out our daily articles on our website, lawenforcementtoday.com. And while you're there, download our free app. Be sure to like and follow us on Facebook. Search for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. He was shot, badly injured, died twice, and was left paralyzed. And now, he's dedicating his life to preventing law enforcement and first responder suicides. The Law Enforcement Today Radio Show is brought to you in part by Transformations Treatment Center. Call 888-991-9725 online at transformationstreatment.center. Transformations Treatment Center provides a comprehensive range of treatments for addiction, substance abuse, co-occurring mental health disorders, and PTSD. Transformations Treatment Center has a nationally acclaimed Veterans and First Responders Treatment Program offering rehabilitation and holistic treatment for all those suffering from substance abuse problems. Law enforcement, firefighters, veterans, and all first responders receive the dedicated and highly specialized treatment they need at Transformations. Their program features first responders and veterans therapists helping first responders and veterans. Transformations Treatment Center. Call 888-991-9725. That's 888-991-9725. Online at transformationstreatment.center. Calling us from Colorado, we have on the phone Police Detective Dan Bright. Dan, thanks so much for calling the Law Enforcement Today show. Very much appreciated. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you on. We're going to talk about some things that, I'll be honest with you, they're just flat out uncomfortable to talk about. Uh, We're going to talk about things that no matter how long I've been doing the Law Enforcement Today show, no matter how many years of police work I did, that they're just, there's no rule book, there's no proper etiquette book and how to handle these conversations you were severely injured we'll talk about that we'll talk about your status what happened and what you're doing now in just a bit so i thank you again for coming on and talking about it even though i'm probably more uncomfortable talking about than you are right yeah i've uh learned after this incident that um the only way that i was going to fix myself was by starting the conversation uh surrounding mental health it's a conversation that we've been having constantly in the Law Enforcement Today show, and I, uh, it's a topic that's near and dear to my heart, because our first responders are literally taking a pounding, and the suicide problem is just massive, and it's been a horrible problem for a very long time for police, firefighters, EMTs, corrections officers, and our military and veterans. It's been a big problem for a very long time. Right. I would agree with that. Before we get into the details of that, let's talk a little bit about your police career. Give people an overview, bird's eye view from start to where you're at now. Yeah, so I started in 2001, uh, all of it here in Colorado. Um, I've worked for three different agencies, uh, from small, medium to large. Been a patrol officer, uh, SRO, investigations, financial crimes, uh, property crimes. Uh, I've been a sergeant. Uh, worked with the impact unit where we uh, deal a lot with narcotics. So my career throughout law enforcement, I kind of touched on several different areas of the the profession and have enjoyed every single one of them. 
So this is my going on my 18th year in law enforcement. Well, thank you for your service in law enforcement. And I think I read somewhere that you're also a military veteran. Yes, I uh, spent four years in the Marine Corps. That was uh, through 94 through 98 and had a absolutely great time. And thank you for your service there as well. So many of our our law enforcement officers are military veterans. And I always tell people I'm very fortunate. I started my career long, long time ago, 1980 in Baltimore. And the people who trained me in policing, the, the experienced officers were Vietnam veterans. They were combat veterans. And we even had commanders and old timers who are Korean war veterans and they were phenomenal people phenomenal police and they really knew about law enforcement and how to do what we call community policing nowadays which is what we did every day back then it was just considered policing back in the day right i don't know when it changed or or why it changed but yeah that could be a topic for uh, a totally different day and maybe actually four or five different shows uh, about community policing, what is it, and why are we discussing it now. Your career changed. Your physical health changed. Everything about your life changed uh, in an instant. And not to be overly dramatic, but there's a very real possibility in law enforcement that you go to work, you're doing fine, it's absolutely boring, nothing going on, and you are in a life-and-death battle, and that's basically what happened to you. Correct. It was uh, September 2nd of 2016. It was in the afternoon, and we got a call of a suicidal man um, that was loading up his RV full of weapons. Uh, He had ammo cans uh, full of ammo, um, long rifles, handguns. He was loading everything up. And on top of that, he had made mention uh, to his family members that if anybody tried to stop him, he was... He was going to kill them. He was going to have a shootout with them. The big problem for us uh, was that he was within a couple hundred yards of a middle school that was just getting ready to uh, let all their kids out for the weekend, um, a couple hundred yards away from an elementary school, a retirement home, and a hospital. So we had a lot of uh, what we call soft targets that were close by, a lot of people that were unable to defend themselves. Uh, so that even increased our response uh, even that much more. And, and I, at the time, I was with the impact unit, and we did a lot of narcotic stuff as well as uh, helping out with the hot calls if if they came out. So, like, this one was a hot call, and we knew that they were going to need a bunch of resources. So uh, my team headed straight to the, to, to the suspect's house. And um, as soon as we... We got there, he tried to leave in his RV, and he saw the roadblock, uh, so he went back to his house. Some of the prior knowledge we had is that he had a gun room somewhere in his house, so we were afraid that if we allowed him back in his house that he's going to have access to more weapons, plus we didn't know who was in his house, so we weren't sure if it was going to turn into a hostage situation or or not. a big barricade. Right. They're barricaded with cover and firing with all these other targets around. It's a That's a bad, bad, bad scenario, but you knew that. Right. I, yeah, I absolutely knew that um, this is probably going to go bad either way, uh, but I would much rather isolate him to the RV and not allow him access to the house because uh, we have a better chance of resolving it and giving him uh, much more limited space to move around. Um, so uh, when he saw the roadblock and, he, roadblock and he started backing up, going into his house, uh, up his driveway, uh, we followed him in. I positioned my truck 
uh, in between the RV and his house to try and cut him off if he were to try to run into the house. Uh, the rest of my team kind of set up behind the RV and then on the passenger side. As soon as I got in the position and threw my truck in the park, he started firing uh, his AK-47 at me. He had a, a drum magazine on there that held about 100 rounds, and uh, he was just um, repeatedly firing at me. We jumped out, started engaging him right away. Little did I know at the time, uh, I thought he was in the driver's seat, so that's where I was aiming my shots. But then he had moved up into the overhead cabin, uh, you know, where the bed is above above the the front seats there. Mm-hmm. And then he crawled up in there, laid down, and started shooting out of that little window above the driver's door. Um, and I, I was, I'm, I'm not an expert. You you did marine uh, military combat and infantry, and that's a higher ground is a, a better perspective. Right, absolutely, and I, I, and I was the only one that could see where he had moved to, just because my other team members, their vantage point, they couldn't really see where he was. So basically, it was just me and the suspect engaging in this gunfight. And and um, you were I, armed with a standard issue uh, sidearm, a pistol. I uh, no, I had a um, uh, my AR-15. Okay. Uh, I had that with me. Um, I had on a helmet and a. Uh, LBV vest that had um, rifle rated plates in the front and the back. Um, so if you know if we were to engage in situations like this, we would hopefully be better prepared for you know when we got shot or at least maybe lessen the injury with the rifle rated plates. But we engaged in the gunfight and probably well, it was right around uh, my 15th shot is when uh, he shot me about four inches below. Uh, my left armpit and the AK-47 round it went uh, into my spleen, destroyed my spleen, and then took out my left lung, part of my left lung, it punctured my diaphragm and then my stomach. As soon as I went down, um, I knew something was wrong, so I just continued to return fire because that's all I could think about until I went unconscious. Uh, thank God we have a medic team uh, with our SWAT team. Some of them guys were on scene and we were actually running up to our location when the shots started going out. So their medics were already en route. Um, and it just so happens that when I fell down, one of the SWAT medics was, was there almost instantly. And that's you know, probably they, the reason why you're live talking to us today. Oh man. We're going to take a short break. We are talking with Detective Dan Bright. This is a Law Enforcement Today show. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Got an old car? You can donate it, whether it's running or not, to the United Breast Cancer Foundation and save a life. They'll even come and pick it up for free. The United Breast Cancer Foundation has saved hundreds of women's lives through their free or low-cost breast screen exams. But now they need your help. The United Breast Cancer Foundation wants to save more lives through early detection by offering women free or low-cost breast screening exams. And donating your old car, SUV, or truck, whether it's running or not, helps pay for them. Plus, you get a charitable tax deduction. Help the United Breast Cancer Foundation save lives by donating your old car, SUV, or truck. Call now for free pickup. 800-280-9435. 800-280-9435. 800-280-9435. 
Call right now. That number again is 800-280-9435. We all know that law enforcement, first responders, and military have dangerous jobs. They see and experience traumas that most can't even imagine. And all too often, that takes a toll leading to substance abuse, PTSD, and co-occurring mental health disorders. Transformations Treatment Center is dedicated to helping protect those who protect. Call 888-991-9725, online at transformationstreatment.center. Transformations Treatment Center provides a comprehensive range of treatments for addiction, substance abuse, co-occurring mental health disorders, and PTSD. Transformations Treatment Center has a nationally acclaimed veterans and first responders treatment program offering rehabilitation and holistic treatment for all those suffering from substance abuse problems. Law enforcement, firefighters, veterans, and all first responders receive the dedicated and highly specialized treatment they need at Transformations. Their program features first responders and veterans therapists helping first responders and veterans. Transformations Treatment Center. Call 888-991-9725. That's 888-991-9725. Online at transformationstreatment.center. Want to fly somewhere? Looking for cheap flights or cheap tickets? Then call. That's right. Call the low-cost airline travel hotline now for prices so low, we can't publish them anywhere. Low-cost airlines has all kinds of cheap travel deals. Fly domestically and save up to 75%. You can even fly internationally and save even more. Yes, fly anywhere in the world and save a lot of money on your plane tickets. We'll even save you money with cheap travel deals on hotels, rental cars, even complete travel packages. So don't book your tickets until you call us first for the absolute cheapest prices on U.S. and international airline tickets and hotels. Call right now for prices so low they can't be published. Travel experts are here 24-7 to help. 800-451-8603-800-451-8603-800-451-8603. That's 800-451-8603. When you have a chance, be sure to go to our website, lawenforcementtoday.com, and download our free mobile app. We have a version for your Android and iPhone devices. It's 100% free. Get it at lawenforcementtoday.com. Back to our conversation with police detective Dan Bright. Uh, is it a sheriff's detective, police detective? What's the proper terminology? Uh, detective. Okay. People make a big deal out of that. And, <laughs> and to me, it never has been a police, sheriff, deputy, state trooper. Right. It's all one big family of blue. Uh, yes. So we're talking about this incident in September 2016. You were shot. And before we go into details, this guy was obviously armed for serious conflict. And he was a serious guy. And you had on uh, Kevlar helmet you had on uh, heavy duty vest you had an ar-15 and these are all the things that the news media and certain activists love to say are militarized police equipment they're not called for not needed uh this situation you certainly did need it but even with all that you were hit and you were hit in an area where the vest didn't offer protection correct yeah i was hit on the left side and uh, just below the the armpit that's when that SWAT medic that came running up the driveway quickly assessed me and scooped me up. And uh, thankfully, the hospital was about 200 yards away because so we went uh, straight to the ER. And upon arrival at the ER, uh, I was dead. I had um, no vitals, no nothing. 
Uh, and uh, there's some things, you know, in this story that I find that are absolutely unbelievable. To be honest with you, the only thing I keep coming back to is that God had this under control. He had a plan for all this. Because um, as I'll explain, there's some things that are just still blow me away. I, I think that's day. apparent, and I agree 100%, because otherwise, why would you be here on this, this interview? Right. Like, for example, uh, when I fell down and I went unconscious, the suspect was still firing at me. And what they had found around my body was these marks in the ground um, all around my body. And they learned that that was from the AK-47 rounds that were skipping off the ground as the suspect still tried to, sh- to shoot at me. And luckily, none of those rounds hit me. I was only shot once. If I had another hold of me, um, I'm pretty certain I wouldn't be here today. Uh, so it's as if, you know, St. Michael, protector of first responders, it was like he was standing there with a shield deflecting those rounds and, and, uh, and saving my body from, uh, from any more trauma. And, and with the hospital only being 200 yards away, you know, after he shot me and he continued to drive uh, towards the hospital where he eventually crashed, but he also began shooting at the hospital through the windows and whatnot. And the on-call surgeon, uh, the guy that saved my life, just prior to that, he had heard all the commotion with the siren, so he went down to the yard room to see what was going on. Right after he left, one of those AK-47 rounds went through his office window, through his computer screen, and through three walls before it stopped. And luckily, it didn't hit anybody inside the hospital. You know, but had the doctor decided to stay in his office, there's a good chance that the one guy that saved my life would have been hit, and then that would have changed the outcome of this completely. And there's too many of these things that I don't believe in coincidence anymore. I'm not quite sure what term to use. Uh, maybe it's God's anonymous plan. I don't know what is a right terminology, but there's a reason why you survived. There's a reason why I'm still here to do what I do, and it's a, a big reason why you and I are having this conversation. Right. And I, I'm not sure what that is, but I just try to make myself available. That's all I can ever do. Right. Absolutely. Um, and then, so when I got into the ER, uh, they did a procedure called an emergency thoracotomy, which uh, less than 1% of patients ever survive. And it just so happens that my surgeon came from Queens, New York, where they perform this procedure on a daily basis because they're so used to dealing with gunshot and stab wounds over there uh, that when I came into the ER, he knew exactly what needed to be done. So they opened up my chest, and what an emergency thoracotomy is, is with their own hands, they massage the heart to imitate a heartbeat to try and get the heart to start beating on its own. They did that uh, several times before the heart did finally beat on its own, but that only lasted a short period before I died a second time. So they went back to massaging the heart and then shocking the heart, um, almost to the point of giving up. Uh, they were close to calling it, um, but the doctor said, let's just try a couple more times, and lo and behold, uh, the heart starts beating on its own again, uh, which is amazing because uh, that Dr. Bertaki, who I am obviously in love with for obvious reasons, uh-huh. he uh you know, for him to have that kind of skill set and then come to Parker, Colorado to continue his work and just the way we met, it's it's still 
sometimes seems surreal that a man of that caliber would be working at a level two trauma center. Well, thank God he was. Um, I'm not saying that because I don't know what else to say. I'm saying in all earnestness and sincerity, thank God he was there and had the training and skill sets to do that. And, and part of what I'm amazed by is your military Marine service. I, I'm assuming there was combat involved and what you had to go through was combat related medical trauma treatment in the United States. Right. Yep. On our, on our own, um, on our own grounds. And that's one of the things I had a, a conversation with someone the other day and they, they were saying people love to do this where they, they compare law enforcement service or military service and that, that one doesn't measure up to the other. And I always tell them it, it, it's, it's the same thing, different places. And we're, we're a big family and there's a lot of kinship with our military brothers and sisters, uh, even those who aren't in law enforcement. Uh, I think there's a, a common understanding and i've gotten a lot of help personally from uh combat veterans of my era and how they adjusted with all the violence they went through and without belaboring that point they see all this horrible conflict overseas and no one in america blinks an eye anymore when a combat veteran comes back from afghanistan iraq or or the gulf or wherever it might be and has issues as relate to the combat service and yet when it's a police officer a first responder a firefighter emt here in the united states people don't view it the same way they, they think that somehow it's less violent here or their service was less intense their drama the trauma they went through is somehow made up I, i'm not mm-hmm. sure how to say this but people don't correlate the two the same right and what i've noticed you know is uh no doubts, obviously, that military uh, witnesses some significant trauma, but it seems like in the first responder world, our exposure to trauma seems to be a lot more prolonged. You know, we're doing this for 20, 30, some guys, even 40 years of dealing with this, whereas in the military, you know, um, it could be five years, 10 years, maybe, uh, you know, and as you progress through the ranks, you're less and less exposed to that kind of environment in the war and um yeah we're just exposed to it for far too long and way too much when we come back from break we'll talk more about your incident your recovery and what you're doing now Uh, but one of the things that i try to get people to understand and it's it's not easy if you don't work in the first responder world if you don't see what you're exposed to all the time there's really no way to explain but our first responders are seeing nonstop and experiencing nonstop violence and trauma, whether it be from car accidents, house fires, accidental deaths, suicides, homicides, and also being the victims of violent crime themselves. And over a 5, 10, 15, 20-year career, the incidents can rack up into the thousands. Mm-hmm. And it leaves Absolutely. them. I don't know if anybody that does this career long uh, for a long period of time that doesn't come out dinged up to some degree or another. And I'm not just talking about physically. I'm talking about mentally and emotionally as well. Right. We're going to take a short break. We are talking with Detective Dan Bright. This is a Law Enforcement Today show. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back.
Attention to anyone that's written a book or wants to write a book. The process is not that complicated. Take a first step. Even if you write a page a day, you'll build momentum and your book will become a reality. The hard part is getting it published. That's when you need to call Page Publishing. They've got hundreds and hundreds of thank yous from different new authors, just like you. They make the process of publishing your new book and getting it sold online a simple process. You can learn how simple it is right now by calling for your free page publishing new author submission kit. One quick three-minute phone call. That's all it takes to get free information and learn how you can get your book published. Pick up your phone right now and call us 24 hours a day at this number. 800-589-1848. 800-589-1848. 800-589-1848. That's 800 800- 589-1848. Epidemic. America's public health crisis. These are all terms that describe the current problem of drug and alcohol abuse in the United States. Countless lives are lost and heartbroken families are too many to count. Transformations Treatment Center is dedicated to saving lives. Call 888-991-9725 and online at transformationstreatment.center. Transformations Treatment Center provides a comprehensive range of treatments for addiction, substance abuse, co-occurring mental health disorders, and PTSD. Transformations Treatment Center has many acclaimed treatment programs offering rehabilitation and holistic treatment for all those suffering from substance abuse problems. Transformations Treatment Center. Call 888-991-9725. That's 888-991-9725. And online at transformationstreatment.center. When you have a chance, be sure to go to our website, lawenforcementtoday.com, and download our free mobile app. We have a version for your Android and iPhone devices. It's 100% free. Get it at lawenforcementtoday.com. I'm John J. Wiley, joined by Detective Dan Bright. Dan, thanks so much for calling the show. Thank you, sir, for having me on. I'm, I'm so... It's going to sound corny, but I'm so glad you survived. I'm so glad you get to talk about what you've been through. I did do a Google search. You can do it too if you're listening. Just do a search for Officer Dan Bright, B-R-I-T-E. You'll find all kinds of things on Google. And I'm glad to see in your case that the news media seems to have done a better job than normal of following up on your case. That's quite often not the case to say, the officer has critical injuries, may not survive. Then they go, oh, the good news is they're going to survive and the injury's not life-threatening, and that's the end of the story. They don't ever seem to talk about them again, but that doesn't seem to be the case with you. No, you know, uh, I think we were very fortunate at the beginning that we had met uh, one of our local anchors, uh, Deborah Takahara, who's very supportive of police. Um, in fact, she was the only one that I would talk to because you know, we're always afraid of the media putting their own spin on things and inserting their own their own thoughts that I did not want that to get out there. That was the, or that was one of the things I did not want to worry about while I was recovering. Right. Um, but she, I knew, was very uh, pro-police, and I felt comfortable in talking with her. And she 
has just done an amazing job of uh, sharing my journey and and now what my what my passion is and she is willing to help me through all of that by getting the word out and and letting people be aware of the mental health struggles that we have in first responders well please on my behalf and at behalf of many first responders and law enforcement officers please tell her we said thank you very much for doing that because not a lot of people in the media do that absolutely and i for one i know exactly what you're talking about i don't want to use my situations uh, as a pawn for press ratings where they i did see a news clip of, for example uh, the incident you were shot in uh, later on towards the end of it uh, another police officer shot and killed the suspect and without belaboring that point the news media in their interview said and i'm not going to use the right words but they made it sound as if in spite of shooting and killing this man the officer won't be charged and i got i got i got angry i got very angry because just the way they worded it right and it's something that happens all the time so i I applaud your efforts in uh being protective about your story so you died twice and you are are paralyzed from the waist down i imagine is that what the deal is yep yeah that doesn't uh Dying twice doesn't come without consequences. Uh, so, unfortunately, uh, I'm paralyzed from the belly button down. And that's simply due because they had to clamp the lower aorta. Uh, both times I, I died, they had to clamp it to keep the blood to the heart and the brain uh, to try to keep those alive. Uh, and then it's starving your legs of the oxygen and blood for that long uh, will lead to paralysis. There's a big trade-off. I like the way you said that. This is where it gets very, very difficult to talk about. Uh, I imagine your physical recovery was lengthy and very trying. It was. I uh, I spent five weeks uh, in ICU, um, and then I spent two and a half months at Craig Hospital, which is a rehab hospital, one of the best ones uh, on the west side of the U.S. It's a, It's an amazing hospital. Um, and the funny thing there is when I showed up at Craig Hospital, they had told me I was probably going to be there for eight or nine months. And uh, and I told them, because I got in there October 6th, I told them I'm going to be home before Christmas. You can tell the doctors kind of laugh and be like, well, yeah, we'll see about that. But the one thing I learned is uh, never challenge a Marine because then you just fuel their fire. So I just remember on the weekends I would work out at Craig Hospital because I had to build up enough strength to prove to them that I could take care of myself. So I was just constantly trying to find a way to to build up that strength. And uh, and sure enough, by December 22nd, uh, I was on my way home. So I had not only got home before Christmas, but I, I destroyed their timeline of being in the hospital for eight or nine months. I was well, only there for, you. for a couple. I, I, I got to say, that's, that's awesome. <laughs> so you, I'm sure you had to work on building up your upper body strength because yes. there's, a, a, I'd imagine, a huge compensation physically that's got to go on when you lose the the use of your lower part of your body. And that's where most of our strength comes from as far as our, our, our thighs, our uh, our buttocks area, that's our core. Uh, right. And without being, I'm not a super fitness guy, especially this age. So to develop enough upper body strength to compensate for that, that's no small task. No, it's not. And, uh, you know, I, I remember, you know, I, at first I couldn't even lift myself out of bed because before this incident happened, I was a healthy 225 pounds. I worked out a lot. I ran a lot. I, I did 
I was always active. And then when this happened, I dropped down to 160, like overnight. All the muscles, everything had just completely vanished. And while I was in ICU, I could barely lift a five-pound weight. So I had to go from the very bottom of the barrel and find a way to work up my strength to where I'm able to transfer myself into my wheelchair. I'm able to push it without help. You know, and that took a lot of work to do, um, especially since I was missing half a lung. I, I can't even begin to imagine, and that's a note to myself, not to complain about my aches and pains. <laughs> I, I still tend to do that. So your physical recovery, I, I can't even begin to imagine it, but I can imagine what it must have been like mentally and emotionally after that to have something that life-changing happening. And by the way, when people say that the injuries aren't life-threatening and the officer will survive, does not mean mm. that the injuries are not, not life-changing and that right. in your case, they were dramatically life-changing. Yes, they uh, completely uprooted our lives uh, for me and my family. And you know, the, the physical pain that I went through, I'd rather deal with 100 times uh, compared to the mental pain, because that was by far the worst thing that I had ever been through. You know, it's, it, it started with when I got home, and you know, my family had to go back to work. My kids had to go back to school. You know, everybody had to go back to their own lives, which I understood. But I was now sitting at home alone and constantly replaying this incident over and over in my head, and that was taking a huge mental toll on me. I would start becoming angry all the time. Uh, I would cry uh, just out of the blue. Um, frustrated, um, afraid, defensive, um, really dwelling on the fact that I can no longer do the things that I used to do. And that, and that was just tearing me up. And I would sleep for 15 hours a day. I'd wake up angry. I'd go to bed angry. Like I could really feel the PTSD was pushing me further into uh, depression. And then it was at one point where these suicidal thoughts started to creep into my head. And then that's when I knew that I was in trouble. You know, for cops, we see um, the results of suicide all the time. You know, we we respond to these and you see the family is just, they're destroyed. They're besides themselves. They They don't know what to do or why it happened. So I knew that when I started getting those thoughts that I was going to be in some serious trouble. And I had that type A personality. You know, we handle stuff on our own. You know, we're so used to dealing with and solving everybody else's problems that when we have our own problems, I, f- I felt like I could do the same thing. So I kept that into myself, and I tried to deal with it all on my own, and it was not working. And my wife, who was also a, a sergeant here at the sheriff's office, she could see that. She could see that I was trying, I was trying to, 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 to fix my, my emotions. I was trying to hide them, and she didn't know how to help. You know, it was... Um, we were both in this whole area of, well, this is not really normal. We shouldn't be sharing emotions. Like, why are we feeling this way? And and I just continued to try and deal with it on my own to the point where the suicidal thoughts really began to take me hostage. And I was, uh, I was at a loss. And for the first time in my life, I threw in the white flag. I'm like, oh, we gotta, we got to get help. I'm um, glad you did. We're going to take a short break. Yeah. We are talking with... Detective Dan Bright, this is the Law Enforcement Today show. There's a lot more to his story coming up. We'll be right back. 
Are you working so hard to make a living you can't take time to make any real money? Is every day the same boring routine going nowhere and the money runs out before the month? My name is Ron Legrand and for over 35 years now I've been helping clients take their life back by buying and selling houses with no money, credit, experience, or license. If you'll call 800-956-0677, 24 hours, and leave a message, I'll send you my new book and CD absolutely free so you can see how. I've bought hundreds of houses and trained thousands to do the same. Call 800 956 0677 get your free starter kit until 500 are gone you'll learn how to make a full-time income on a part-time basis without risk largely tax-free and get 90 percent of the work done for you for pennies that's 800-956-0677 800-956-0677 again 800-956-0677 that's 800-956-0677 want to fly somewhere Looking for cheap flights or cheap tickets? Then call. That's right. Call the low-cost airline travel hotline now for prices so low, we can't publish them anywhere. Low-cost airlines has all kinds of cheap travel deals. Fly domestically and save up to 75%. You can even fly internationally and save even more. Yes, fly anywhere in the world and save a lot of money on your plane tickets. We'll even save you money with cheap travel deals on hotels, rental cars, even complete travel packages. So don't book your tickets until you call us first for the absolute cheapest prices on U.S. and international airline tickets and hotels. Call right now for prices so low they can't be published. Travel experts are here 24-7 to help. 800-451-8603-800-451-8603-800-451-8603. That's 800-451-8603. Missed past episodes of Law Enforcement Today's show? Never fear. You can listen to them online. Just go to our website, lawenforcementtoday.com, or download our free app, also available on our website. That's lawenforcementtoday.com. Returning to our conversation with Dan Bright, this is a Law Enforcement Today show. Dan, you said before the break that you came to a point where you threw in the towel and realized you couldn't do this. So many people, so many first responders, and I'm not sure what it is about us that we feel that we can solve mental injuries because that's what I think this is a mental mm-hmm. injury with willpower and with inner strength and determination by the way willpower comes from our thinking which is part of our brain and if you have a mental injury that's going to be affected as well so I'm I'm glad you reached a point where you said I need help and obviously you got the help I'm sorry you had to go through what you had to to get to that point but you reached out for help, and what happened then? Uh, well, that was the best thing uh, that I could have ever done. Um, you know, I when I was having these suicidal thoughts, I'm like fairly certain that I was going to lose my job, um, lose some friends. Um, you know, it, it was just going to continue to to destroy my whole livelihood. Um, but I knew that even though I didn't want to let go of it, you know it when you have to give up your badge and it's not on your own terms, like that really does hurt. It does. And I was not ready to give up my badge. And that was my biggest fear and why I held all those emotions. in. but then I came to a breaking point where it, I had to pick my family, you know, over the badge. Um, 
and so I'm like, let's let's get help. And we went to go see a mental therapist, and we began uh, processing all this trauma that had happened. And uh, you know, now I am not angry. I don't get frustrated. Um, I don't break down and cry in the middle of uh, having a conversation with someone. I, you know, my thinking is a lot clearer. I'm able to accept the fact that I'm in a wheelchair. I don't have to like it, but I'm able to accept the fact that I am in a wheelchair. And then I'm also starting to realize the power of being in this wheelchair is that I can now help other first responders. And that's what we started to do is create legislation, both at the federal and the state level here in Colorado, um, for two things. One is to provide job protections for first responders that do reach out for help. You know, I've noticed that that's one of the biggest concerns for officers that are struggling is they're afraid to lose their job. In my department, they called, they were rubber gunned. They were suspended and, you know, put in the desk. And it's for people on the outside looking in and go, well, he still gets a job. It's demoralizing and you're not viewed the same by your peers. You're viewed as somehow not, I, I don't know. It doesn't make sense from where I'm at now to say it, but you're viewed as if you're not reliable anymore you can't be depended on to get my back if i need help right and there is nothing further from that truth because all these issues that we have while doing our job they can all be resolved just with a little bit of a mental health therapy you know they can all return back to your to your normal self we weren't designed to handle as much trauma as first responders do on a daily basis so we're creating this law, uh, there's job protections for first responders that reach out to help destroy that stigma that, you know, suck it up, um, deal with it on your own, don't let anybody know you're weak. We're trying to destroy that by having this protection so people can reach out for help and feel confident that when they're done, that they'll still have their job. And the other thing we're trying to do is make first responder suicides mandatory reporting, but with some stipulations, you know, obviously we don't want to release their names or their photos out of respect uh, for the family and their privacy, but we want to capture some, some key data in regards to the suicides so we can really see what's going on. It's like, you know, in any agency, you know, you keep statistics of the problem areas and then you develop a plan to address those problems. Well, the same thing with uh, police suicides, like we're we are not tracking them at a federal level, so we really don't know how many there are, but we do know that the agencies and the families that voluntarily give that information, we know that those numbers are much higher than the line of duty deaths. Yes. And I think that once we start tracking first responder suicides, we're gonna see that, that number is probably way more than we ever thought. And I'm and then, really, even, I'm, I'm concerned about our active duty uh, law enforcement personnel and first responders. But I have a, mm-hmm. a bigger concern for the retirees because so yeah. many of them, they, like you said, their career is suddenly over. And I'll just say in my own, my own situation, I got hurt and retired young, and all of a sudden at 33, my career was over. And now what do you do? And then you said, you sit around, and all you have is your thoughts going back and forth over these horrendous things. And my mm-hmm. mind is a really bad neighborhood. I mean, a very, very bad neighborhood. So the more thinking I do, the, the worse I feel. And so many retirees, the last coping skill they have is the job and the camaraderie with their, their brothers and sisters. And when it's gone, they struggle. 
Yes, absolutely. I think, I don't remember the current statistic, but I, I think it's within a few years of retirement, um, or, you know, first responders will unfortunately commit suicide, which is which is very sad. And I think just by bringing awareness to the actual suicide number and then capturing key data to help keep track of how we can best address this problem, I think it's going to go a long ways with uh, combating uh, first responder suicide. And and the other thing that really, you know, I just learned this a few weeks ago, is less than 10% of the agencies in the U.S. have any kind of suicide prevention program. Yet we know now voluntarily from the volu- uh, from the data given by agencies and family members that that number is is much higher, and um, and I don't know I don't understand why we don't have more suicide prevention programs. I, I really don't either. And for all the failings that the VA has had with dealing with these issues, they've been far more proactive than our states and local governments when it comes to issues of first responder and law enforcement officers' mental health and wellness. And one of the things, too, I have noticed, in back when I was a kid, back before the VA started doing what they do, um, and I'm not here to argue whether they do it well or not, but a lot of the combat veterans that came back, the people that trained me, that were Vietnam veterans, they took the bull by the horns and started talking to each other. And that's one of the things I think that we, as a, a law enforcement family, need to be doing. We need to have conversations like you and I are having, saying, you know, there was a period of time where I was not okay. It, the reason why is not that important. I just was not okay, and I needed to get help, and you can too. Right. And it gets better. Yes, it uh, it gets much better. It's just that initial beginning, you know, of, of starting the conversation. And I've been working with a uh, police psychologist here in Colorado. Her name is Dr. Sarah Metz, and we're creating a series of videos that, that does just that. You know, it's of actual first responders, you know, fire police, uh, ambulance drivers, dispatchers, you know, actual first responders and the issues they've had with work, you know, with PTSD, with trauma, with um, dealing with suicidal thoughts. We're creating this video to show people, hey, we're leading by example. Like, this is how we crush the stigma in this profession. We crush this, this culture of of sucking it up you know it's okay to talk about it and it's okay to reach out for help and i promise you it's going to get much better once you get through it and you're going to learn much better coping skills than drinking alcohol or substance abuse or or or, or whatever other unhealthy coping mechanisms there are and those things You'll, oftentimes create a, a monster that will take your life that yes. uh, and unfortunately it's it's part of the scenario we see all too often I do want to close on this. I'm still the old school. We were taught early on, you know, suck it up, buttercup, have a case of beer, talk about it with the guys at the work while you drink a couple of beers and, and pick up and show up to work the next day. And that's what you did. And that worked to some degree, but it also did not work in the long run. It's okay to turn around and say, look, I need help. I need to talk to somebody because you're still being in my mind, a tough guy, because you got to deal with this stuff. It's not going to be magically taken away by talking about someone. Right. Yep. It doesn't just, uh, it just doesn't disappear if you try to suppress it. In fact, it makes it worse because then you ended up, end up having a cumulative PTSD, which is a lot more complex to deal with. So we want to encourage people 
to take care of those issues up front and early. It's just like going to the dentist. You know, you should go to a mental health as, much, as often as you go to a dentist or as often as you get an oil change in your car. It would be nice um, if we paid better attention and care to ourselves than we do our cars. Dan, we are right. running out of time. We're going to have you back on the show again in the future. I do appreciate your service, and I really appreciate you taking time to tell us all about what you've been through. Thanks so very much. Thank you, sir, and God bless you guys. Thank you so much for spending part of your day with us here at Law Enforcement Today. On behalf of everyone associated with the show and the website, this is John J. Wiley. Until next time, see ya.